Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to this, one of our end-of-the-year editions of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. Part of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode 275, our 2021 end-of-year episode, we visit with Cindy Burnett, book influencer and host of the Thoughts from a Page podcast, headquartered in Houston, Texas. Cindy brings this episode her recommendations for the top 10 book reads of the year, at least in her opinion, and we're looking forward to it. You won't want to miss this episode for Cindy's suggestions. As an avid reader and book reviewer, Cindy loves to talk about books wherever she can. She actively talks about books on social media and writes two book columns. She's co-creator of Conversations from a Page, a Houston author event series that brings authors and readers together in a relaxed setting to discuss books. And what could be better than that? And she is a SheReads.com contributor where she writes best of book articles in the genres of historical fiction, nonfiction, and mysteries. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time joining us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, LandisWade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. Speaking of writing, shameless plug here by the other sponsor of this podcast, which happens to be me. Uh, I have a novel coming out uh, in the spring of 2022. It's called Deadly Declarations. You can find out more about that at LandisWade.com. There's pre-order information there uh, for ebook and print book as well. It's, uh, it's a novel that uh, explores a 250-year-old North Carolina mystery set in Charlotte, uh, which, if solved, uh, might change U.S. history. Uh, possibly the first great American government conspiracy. John Adams called it one of the greatest curiosities and one of the deepest mysteries that ever occurred to him. And Thomas Jefferson called it spurious and an apocryphal gospel. I'm talking about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, which is the heart of this novel. Uh, but it's modern day set in a uh, retirement community where the reality of getting older is a combination of fear, doubt, humor, and new life. And where these characters that uh, I've invented transport readers to the courtroom and then to the Virginia countryside to prove that age is just a number when searching for and finding the truth. Hope you'll check that out at LandisWay.com. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, uh, we put out a book report every two weeks. It's free to sign up for, and uh, there's some free stuff you get when you sign up. You can check that out at the uh, podcast website. Uh, hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Cindy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's, it's great uh, having a fellow podcaster on. Uh, congratulations and kudos to you on your podcast, Thoughts from a Page, uh, and also all that you do for authors and books in the book world. Well, I love to read, so it's a lot of fun. So kind of to set the foundation for this episode, because we're fortunate listeners, uh, Cindy is 
you know, well-read. She's she writes about books. She reads books like me. She talks to people about books. And uh, so let's set the foundation here. First of all, we're both podcasters, Cindy. You found me, and then we decided to do a little collaboration. How'd you find us? I'm not even sure how I found you. <laughs> I think it was another author that maybe came on your show. Good, a lot good. of times that's how I find people. You know, if I've interviewed somebody and then I see that they're interviewed by somebody else, I'll usually check out the podcast. So I checked yours out, looked great, and here we are. There we go. And then I checked yours out, sounded great. And I said, hey, yeah, let's do something together. Um, how did you get into podcasting, Cindy? Well, you mentioned that literary salon that I host. And so I have been doing that for maybe four years and the pandemic hit. So I'll back up. In the literary salon, I interview authors. Usually we bring in two authors at a time to Houston and I interview them. And so people over the years had said, you should launch a podcast. And I thought, I, I don't really... I'm not even sure how to do that. I don't know what would be involved. So I kind of kept putting it off. And then March 2020 came. We suddenly had nothing to do. I was sitting around with a lot of free time, a lot of stress. And I thought, well, maybe this would be a good way to devote my time and energy and keep me from doom scrolling all the time. So I did a bunch of research. And then in June 2020, I launched it. Yeah, that's great. Everybody says, well, why don't you just start a podcast? You know, there's nothing to it. All you need to do is know how to talk and have a microphone. Well, there is a little bit more to it than that. But I will say this. Uh, anybody can who has a voice and has something to say can start a podcast. And uh, as long as you have one listener, hey, you're doing something with it. But you've got more than one listener. Um, and I've listened to your show. And I like listeners. You'll like uh, the show Thoughts uh, from a Page because it's very conversational. It's what we ascribe to on this podcast, having a conversation with our guest and Cindy does just that. Cindy, talk a little bit about, um, you know, where you find your guests and uh, how, you, you know, your process a little bit so people can learn more about this thing called podcasting. Well, I laugh when you're talking about anybody can start a podcast because I had no idea how much work was involved in starting a podcast. And I agree anyone can start a podcast, but keeping it going, <laughs> that part is a little bit harder sometimes. But I, when I first started, I have, because of what I do, I know a number of authors. So I reached out to people that I already knew to start with them. So I could kind of get the show launched, have something out there, you know, have something to show people when I pitched. So then I started pitching to publishers. Um, I think just periodically, if a book looked good, I would reach out and I had some luck. Some said yes, some said no, some didn't respond. And so over time, then I think you sort of build up a reputation, probably the same way you do. An author sees the show, sees their friend on the show, and then starts asking if they can come on. I got on publisher lists. So these days, I rarely pitch. I usually am pitched. But if there's a book I really want to talk to the author, I've loved the book, then I reach out. Yeah, it's funny because uh, you mentioned uh, you know grabbing authors, you know, and bringing them in. I, the, the first author, Paul Krzyha, if you're listening out there, he was in my critique group, and I said, "Hey, Paul, you're going to come be my first first guest." And and you know, I'm out there recruiting, trying to get people on the show, and now I get books sent to me that I didn't ask for, uh, you know, coming from publishers, and then people submitting, and it's 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 great on the one hand, you know, that that's, but there's only so many episodes I can do, and so many books I can read in a year. And I'm sure you run into the same thing. Absolutely. And also I get pitched by books like children's books. Well, I mean, I don't do children's books, you know, and just kind of different things like that or genres that I never read. So those are a little easier to say no to. But yes, I mean, I I do two episodes a week, sometimes three. And I thought when I started, that was going to be hard to fill, but I could do an episode every single day if I had the time and the ability to read all of those books. 
Yeah, well, you talk about doing two episodes a week. I, I took on that uh, challenge uh, during the year that COVID hit, and it was great while we had nothing to do and nowhere to go. But now that the world's opening up and, I'm, and my next novel's coming out and I'm also doing some other things, I'm going to have to, unfortunately, listeners, I'm having to cut back to one show a week uh, next year just to to make time for, for other things. Um, but that could open up some other stuff, too. It could open up some video deals we do that aren't directly on the audio podcast. So it is. And, and, and Cindy, people always ask me the question. I'll ask you, do you, do you have time to read all the books? I would say I read probably 90% of the books. I always at least read the beginning and the end, even if I don't read the entire book. But I would say at least 90% of the books I have read completely. Yeah, and that's that's the same camp I fall into. And that's why doing a two-week next year is not, not going to be possible for me. So yeah, so uh, earlier in the month uh, where I recorded four episodes for January, you know, I had taken four books with me to the to my cabin over a weekend and, and read three and a half of them. And people say, well, how do you do it? Well, you read a little bit differently. You read, you read fast, you know, you read sometimes, uh, like you say, I like to peek at the end. I like to peek, uh, in the middle. If there's pictures in the middle, I'll flip through those two. I'm not. A, so yeah. So it's, you got to develop a system to read them, but then it's just nice to read a lot of different, uh, different genres. And I know you've done that uh, as well over the years, but Hey, here's a good question. I sometimes ask writers, you know, why they love to write. I'll ask you, Cindy, the uh, book whisperer, why do you love books? That's a great question. I've always loved to read since I was little. I can remember hiding under my covers with the flashlight with the, you know, trying to hide from my parents so they would try to not put me to bed. But I just love being transported, I think, more than anything. I love learning about different places, different time periods. I love creativity. I love beautiful language. So I think it's a variety of things. That's great. You summed it up well. And you're not just a, a book lover. You, I think on your website, you talk about uh, loving theater, art, movies, national parks, travel, and hiking in Colorado during the summer. So uh, I've got a son who lives in Colorado. So, uh, And I suppose that's not too far from Houston. You can jump on a plane and get there pretty quickly. We drive. We're big road trippers. <laughs> so it's it's like maybe 18 hours, but we go every summer. You know, Houston gets a little hot in the summer, so we take a break and head up to Colorado. That's great. Well, you know, we talked about collaborating. I thought how great it would be, Cindy, for you and me to, um, for me to have you on your show and for you to do your top 10 list of books for the year and a few honorable mentions. Because last week on the show, we had Mark West with Storied Charlotte, and he took his top 10 with the Charlotte focus, uh, and you're going to take us, you know, beyond Charlotte. So this will be a great chance for our listeners to get some really good book suggestions going into the new year. But before I do that, Cindy, I'd like to just do a quick recap for some things that happened on our podcast this past year. Um, like I said, we we're pretty busy. I had uh, 94 author episodes where I talked with authors about their books. We had uh, eight craft talks with authors uh, that we did. We had uh, two episodes, this being one of them, where we recommended a seri you know, number of books to, to listeners. And then I had 87 episodes uh, on Patreon, our, our, our channel where people can help us help authors give voice to their written words. We did some deeper dives into the craft and business of writing. And uh, so it's it's been a pretty, pretty busy year. You do a Patreon channel too, don't you, Cindy? I do. I do it a little bit differently. I have right. two series that I do, I uh, independent booksellers, 
Every month I interview a different independent bookstore and then I inter- interview two bookstagrammers a month. But yes, I do have a Patreon channel. That's great. Well, it's it's a great way for people when they start following a podcast, no matter whether it's this one or another one, to uh, to chip in because, you know, it's amazing how quickly the costs add up, you know, to podcast. Uh, and how much time it takes you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I'm not worried about getting paid. That'd be like a penny an hour. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I just want to cover, cover a few costs. That's all. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and a few other things. I just want to mention some of the authors we had because while we're talking about uh, books to read, you might not have read or seen these books, but uh, just learned today that Jason Mott, who was on the podcast, he wrote a book with a great title called Hell of a Book. And his book just won the National Book Award. So uh, for fiction, um, I was guest hosted by Alice Osborne. And some of the other notable uh, authors we had on this past year, you can either go check out the episode, uh, go to our uh, episode menu tab on the podcast, or just scroll through and, or just go to the bookstore and pick up the book. Wiley Cash, uh, When Ghosts Come Home. Lisa Jewell uh, called one of the uh, top fiction writers in the UK, The Night She Disappeared. We had Fry Galliard on. He wrote uh, A Hard Rain, America in the 60s. Uh, Chris Fabry, A Piece of the Moon. Brad Taylor, American Trader. Clyde Edgerton, Walking Across Egypt and Rainy and uh, Lunch at the Piccadilly. We also had Ron Rash. Uh, he talked about his short story collection in the Valley. Jill McCorkle, Hieroglyphics, uh, David Baldacci, A Gambling Man, John Hart, The Unwilling, uh, M. William Phelps, if you like true crime, he, uh, the book was We Thought We Knew You. Tracy Clark, Chicago mystery writer, What You Don't See. Steve Berry, uh, national thriller writer of the Kaiser's Web. Aaron Gwynn, he's uh, local, All God's Children. And Kim Wright, also local, The Longest Day. And many, many more authors. So as you can see there, Cindy, not only have been busy, but has some pretty good, uh, pretty good talent on the show. Absolutely. Yeah. So... Let's talk about books. You've, um, I mean, it's probably, I know it's probably hard for you, wasn't it? I said, Hey, Cindy, please pick out 10 of your top, you know, 10 books of the year. Was that difficult? It was really difficult. I kind of keep a running list as the year goes on. You know, a book I really love makes it on the list. And then as I read, I have to, if one goes on, one goes off. I usually end up around 12 or 13. So getting to 10 was really hard. I sat there for a long time debating which two or three might become honorable mentions. You know, that's, that's why I gave you the flexibility to do some honorable mentions. I mean, people say top 10 this, top 10 that, but but we'll give you some some slack there to stretch that rope to give us a, a few more suggestions. Um, and I, I don't know if these are in the order from top to bottom or they're just 10, but I'm going to just start with the with the list here, and I'll, uh, I'll I'll do the title of the book, and then you can talk about the a uh, little bit about the book itself and what you liked about it. So, I think the first book on the list here is "The End of Men" by Christina Sweeney Bard. That's right, and these are not really in any order. I think I just was working through them, trying to get to ten, and so I love them all. And it's they're not alphabetical, they're not publication date. I'm not really sure what order they're in, but <laughs> they're, they're not. It's not an order that I love them. <laughs> that, that's uh, right. Yeah. So, so the end of men is speculative fiction, science fiction, either one. Uh, takes place during a pandemic. Uh, she wrote it pre-COVID. This pandemic actually is a pandemic that takes only men. So 90% of the men, the world's men die. 
And so it's more a look at gender and what happens when you lose that large a population of one gender. You know, who fills those roles? How do things play out? What happens? So it was interesting because when I spoke with her, I interviewed her. And when I spoke with her, she said the pandemic was sort of a side story for her. The whole idea was more the gender imbalance and what do you do when you lose that many people of one gender? And she had to figure out some way to do it. And so she chose a pandemic, which is kind of ironic now that we're in the middle of one. What does that say, uh, Cindy, about you that you're you've fallen in love with a book where most of the men in the world get killed off? <laughs> Yeah, my husband probably wouldn't love that. But, you know, it's really not, it's not, I don't know how to explain it. It's not anti-men at all. It's more just the idea that men fill certain roles and women fill certain roles. So like garbage men, do you see many female garbage men, things like that. So what happens when there's no training, you know, all the people that would train them are gone. There's nobody to fill all these roles. What do you do? So I think it was more just kind of a science fiction premise. And she played it out very, very thoughtfully. And some of the things she predicted regarding our virus, I thought were pretty amazing. Well, that is really interesting because, you know, there are a lot of people um, in the world today that are striving toward this sort of, you know, general neutral idea that, you know, you don't, the things that, you know, boys typically played with and girls typically played with, it doesn't have to be that way. It's not a, it's not a crime if a boy wears a dress, you know, it's, yeah. Well, hey, they wear kilts in Scotland, right? So, I mean, you know, and so all these things, uh, interesting. Um, but then again, there are probably some jobs that, uh, you know, historically, you know, one sex or the other didn't really gravitate toward. And I don't know whether that's in the DNA or just because it's the way it was. But how did the book deal with some of that? Well, I mean, it was very interesting and they were trying to slot in positions, you know, so that people were picking up the trash or I'm trying to, you know, I don't know, I guess male men are both women and female, but they mean male and female, but there were just a variety of things like that. And not only that, if you're pregnant, everybody wants to suddenly be pregnant with a girl. If you have girls, then you're the lucky one. So, it, you know, and boys are born, they have to go live in this special nursery to make sure they are not sickened and they're able to stay away from the virus until they can find a cure. So it just more, I mean, I think it could have been either gender, but it was just the idea of what do you do when one is struck down so, you know, humongously. Mm. Well, fascinating idea for, you know, sci-fi speculative fiction. Um, all right, let's, let's go to number two here. House of Sticks. Yes, House of Sticks by Lee Tran. So Lee's face is a memoir. Lee's family came from war-torn Vietnam in the 90s to Queens. So she had lived in a house of sticks actually in Vietnam. That's partly the, the reason for the title. And then they were um, brought to the U.S. by some kind of program, some kind of immigration program that then put them in this two-bedroom apartment in Queens. She had four, three older brothers. There were four children. And her father had been a prisoner of war in Vietnam for a long time. So he had a lot of PTSD. They were trying to adjust to being in the United States, what that was like going to American school. You know, they didn't speak English initially. I think she was three when she first came over. So it's a coming of age memoir, trying to deal with your own culture, a new culture, how you adjust, and then, you know, living with somebody with PTSD. Like she couldn't see, she needed glasses, but her dad thought it was a government conspiracy, so we wouldn't get them for her. So for years, she couldn't see the chalkboard. She couldn't necessarily always see anything that was very far away till a teacher in high school helped her get glasses. Now, Lee is wonderful, and she ended up going to Columbia and graduating from there. This book has been all over the place. She's one of the Goodreads Choice Award nominees. So it's an outstanding story. We chose it for my book club, for my literary salon. 
fun. Everybody loved it. It's just a wonderful book. What was it about the book that pulled you in? Because sometimes, you know, memoir uh, that's not written as well as others is just sort of a, here's what happened. Here's what happened next. Here's what happened next. Uh, the good memoirs are the ones that kind of pull you in and, and reveal certain things and make you think about some of your own, you know, worldviews. What, what was it about this book that kind of struck you? Well, a couple of things. I'm really picky about writing. So I like things that are very well written. I like beautiful language, good sentence structure, things that flow naturally. Also, I really liked learning about another culture and this experience of trying to come to the United States, just being thrown in, you know, with very little resources. They didn't have heat in their apartment during the winter. They, you know, they didn't have anybody to help them. This program brought them over, but they actually had to pay back their airline tickets. So they were doing the equivalent of, you know, like they were sewing all these cummerbunds and things like that in their apartment. It, it was, you know, just a terrible experience for them. So I think that sometimes putting yourself in somebody else's shoes is a hard thing to do. But these type of memoirs really do go a long way toward understanding what other people are going through. That's great. So, it, it, you know, when you read, you become more empathetic. Uh, you can see, put yourself in other people's shoes. That's great. All right. Next book, The Invisible Woman. So this is historical fiction by Erica Roebuck. She's one of my favorite authors. And this is a fictionalized account of the life of American spy Virginia Hall. Uh, Virginia's from Baltimore. She ended up not being able to fight for the United States. So she instead was recruited by the OSS, was in France fighting for the resistance. Virginia only had one leg. She had a prosthetic leg as her second leg. She climbed over the Pyrenees during the war. <laughs> I was like, I don't think I could do that with both my legs. So she was really tough. She dressed up. She, so she came in and they, they dressed her up and she was called the invisible woman because they, she was in, I think her twenties, but they dressed her up as an old woman. So a lot of the times when she would meet these resistant workers and resistance workers in France, she would look like an old woman. And so they wouldn't take her seriously initially. And they would kind of poo poo her and not listen to what she was saying. But she was very intense and she was able to get the job done. And so this covers um, a later mission that she did and how she helped supplies come in and ran this entire network in France. It's a wonderful story. And she's just so impressive. Did they turn this into something on Netflix? I think I saw something on I I think maybe. I know yeah. there was also a nonfiction book about Virginia Hall that came out around the same time this one did, maybe a little sooner. But yes, I think there's been more attention. She did not have children, but her niece is still alive, and Erica interviewed her. But you know, it was just wonderful to hear her story and everything she accomplished. And she survived. I mean, she came back and worked for the CIA for years. I mean, that's amazing that, uh, you know, with one leg, she became this uh, American spy that did, did so much. Um, very interesting. Um, all right. Uh, the next one, The Man Who Died Twice. So this is by Richard Osman. He's a British TV celebrity. I think he hosts some game shows. So this is a second in a series, but it can definitely be read as a standalone. It takes place in a place called Cooper's Chase, a retirement community in Kent, England. Four octogenarians who solve mysteries. So in the first book, they get the name The Thursday Murder Club. And so this is the follow-up to The Thursday Murder Club. In this instance, there are, Elizabeth is an MI5 agent, and she has someone from her past who shows up and wants to almost like treat, keep Cooper's chase like a safe house. So they hide him, but things go drastically differently than he hopes. They are now on the hook for $20 million worth of diamonds. The New York Mafia is looking for them. 
It's so much fun. It's so funny. He has a great sense of humor. It is just your laugh, but the mystery is super clever. He writes really well. They're just so much fun. I tell you, you, you just, uh, you know, I talked about cutting back next year, but you're just adding to my list of things that I want to read here with, <laughs> with all these books. And, and speaking of that, how do you do that? How do you read all these other books and also read the books that you're recording with on the podcast? Well, I'm getting a lot pickier about who I will record on the podcast because I'm trying to have more overlap so that I'm not trying to read here and not be reading the same books that I'll be writing about and recording about. And I also talk to groups all the time with book recommendations. So um, I just try to have it overlap as much as I can. All right. That's great. Number five, Once There Were Wolves. So Once There Were Wolves by Charlotte McGonaghy is it's fiction, but it's set in a little bit, not not too distant future, but a little bit of the future. And it follows the fictional reintroduction of wolves to the Scottish Highlands. So Charlotte had read the book American Wolf about the reintroduction of the wolves to Yellowstone and was fascinated with that. Wolves have not been in Scotland for like centuries, but she wanted to see what would happen if she wrote a story about what it was like to reintroduce the wolves there. So Inti is the main character. She has a twin sister, Aggie. They have had some trauma. You don't know what it is. They are coming to Scotland. Inti is leading the reintroduction. I think it's nine wolves, 14 wolves. I'm not sure. So Charlotte does the most beautiful job of bringing the Scottish Highlands to life. Like you just feel like you're walking through the woods with Inti. Also, these wolves, you just kind of get to know each one of them. They number them. They don't name them just like they did in Yellowstone so that you don't get too attached. But the whole process for what it's like to reintroduce wolves, what happens, the, the I don't know what you want to call it, the pushback from the neighbors, you know, the farmers worry about their livestock. But then also what happens when these wolves come in and how much they are able to transform the landscape, just like they did in Yellowstone, where birds that hadn't been seen in, you know, four decades are appearing and flowers are back and how important it is to, to balance an ecosystem. It's just a beautiful book. Well, it's interesting. Uh, about five years ago, um, our family went to Scotland, uh, or at least my wife and I did. And we, we first I played a little golf with some guys, and then she came over and we went and toured the Highlands. Uh, it's just a beautiful area. I mean, it's uh, everywhere you looked. Uh, I did not see any wolves. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> They're not there. <laughs> <laughs> they, if they were, they would have. They might have seen me before I saw them. Uh, all right, well, we're up, that's that's five of the of the ten. Um, I'm gonna tease out just a second uh, what we're going to do on Patreon here. Uh, Cindy's going to stick around after this, folks, and we're going to talk about why readers love mysteries and historical fiction, uh, maybe why Cindy and I love mysteries and historical fiction, <laughs> and a few suggestions from Cindy for uh, more mysteries and more historical fiction. So uh, you can check that out at uh, patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. Uh, probably for less than a cup of coffee a month. And you can get that in more than 100 episodes uh, on that channel where we uh, dive deeper um, into the craft and business of writing. All right, we got five good ones. We had a we had a speculative fiction with the end of men, House of Sticks, uh, a memoir, The Invisible Woman, historical fiction about the American spy, Virginia Hall, The Man Who Died Twice, fun mystery. I like that, a funny mystery. Uh, and Once There Were Wolves, uh, uh, set in uh, the Scottish Highlands. So number six, Once Upon a Wardrobe. So Once Upon a Wardrobe is by Patty Callahan, who's also one of my favorite authors. 
It's historical fiction, and it has to do with the origins of Narnia. So she wrote another book about C.S. Lewis's second wife, Joy. I think her name was Joy Davidman. And when she got involved in that story, then she started thinking more about C.S. Lewis's stories and Narnia and you know the whole concept of where it came from. So she decided to create this historical fiction story, a 19-year-old woman named Megs who goes to Oxford and her eight-year-old brother, George, who is critically ill, terminally ill. He has a heart condition. He was born with it, you know, and he won't live probably to his ninth birthday. So it's 1950. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has just been published, and George loves it. He has read it and reread it and reread it, and he wants to know where Narnia comes from. So Megs is at Oxford, where C.S. Lewis is an Oxford Don, and he begs and begs her to go meet him and to find out about Narnia. So Megs is a math and science girl. She doesn't really like stories, doesn't feel they're necessary, kind of pushes back a little bit, but eventually she loves her brother. So she goes to meet C.S. Lewis, who goes by Jack. So it's Jack and his brother, Warney, and they live in a cottage, the cottage that they actually lived in. And she goes and she meets them and she spends time with them once a week. Asking stories from asking questions from George and then relaying the stories back to George. So every time Megs asks a question, Jack gives her this very long story from his childhood. And she feels like the question hasn't been answered. And she goes back to George and says, Well, I didn't get the answer to your question, but I got this long story about Jack's history. And so she relays the story to George and he's like, oh, but he did answer this question. He just used it as a story to tell you about him, but also to give you these little parts of the ideas of Narnia, the people who inhabited it. It's just so stunning. It's one of those books that every single page I was marking sentences and it's just, you know, the, the importance of story and your history and family. It's just absolutely wonderful. That's very clever. It's a nice takeoff on the line, which in the wardrobe to have somebody who wants to have it interpreted and then to have it interpreted again in fiction. That's, that's great. Um, all right. Speaking of books, we've got a book called The Personal Librarian. So this is by Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray. All these writing together duos are popular now. And so Marie Benedict is white and Victoria Christopher Murray is black. And they decide to come together to write this story because it's about a woman, Belle DaCosta Green, who worked for J.P. Morgan as his personal librarian. And she was black, but she passed as white her entire life. So it was just absolutely fascinating. They wrote letters at the front end, each author did, letters at the back end about working together and trying to bring her story to life and what that was like. And then they did a wonderful job. It's told from Belle's perspective. And she just talks about what it was like, you know, her own life to to pass and to try to live as black at home, but be white when she was with J.P. Morgan and, and everyone else and how she had to hide this portion of herself. But she was incredibly intelligent. She's responsible for a lot of the J.P. Morgan Library collection, all these, you know, 500, 600-year-old books and manuscripts that are there. She was very clever, knew how to negotiate quite well. So, and he never knew. And in fact, she died. Most people didn't know that she was passing until after she died. That's interesting. I think I listened, uh, one of the episodes I listened to on your podcast, uh, Boston Page, I think you interviewed an, uh, an author, or maybe they were both there, who were talking about just this, writing a book where they, one was white, one was black. Am I, am I thinking, remembering that correctly? Yes, that we, I interviewed them, and then I interviewed the women who wrote, um, We Are Not Like Them, 
It's the, it's called We Are Not Like Them, and it's the same idea, but it's it's a modern story about a, a child, an eight, 19-year-old boy who was shot by a police officer, and the white woman in the story's husband is the police officer, mm-hmm. and the black woman in the story is a news reporter, and how they're trying to deal with their friendship and this very fraught issue. Uh, that's exactly it. That's what I remember, because they were both coming at it from a different perspective, which provided a nice uh, contrast as you read you know, one chapter to the next. Um, all right. We have another book here, Songs in Ursa Major. So Songs in Ursa Major by Emma Brody is historical fiction, and it's loosely based on the relationship between James Taylor and Joni Mitchell. When I first came across this book, that is one of my favorite eras of music, late 60s, early 70s. So I knew I had to read it. I love James Taylor. I had absolutely no idea they'd even had a year-long relationship. So I was completely enthralled with this story from the very beginning, but it's set amid the music festivals of the late 60s, early 70s. Starts out paralleling their lives, but then I think she kind of goes in her own direction. But how difficult it was for the Joni Mitchell character, whose name is Jane, to, you know, kind of find a place for herself. Female musicians are always struggling a little bit more. It's a male-dominated world, especially then, and what it was like to try to chart her own path and what that meant sometimes for her career. But it talks about their relationship, some of the troubles that he had, and just what it was. She kind of parallels the idea of when Joni Mitchell wrote Blue, and the album's called Songs in Ursa Major. Takes you through what it's like recording an album and the create the creative process and all of that. Why do you think they uh, they made a historical fiction? Uh, they didn't want to get sued. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. I think she really wanted to tell her own story. I think yeah. she's, you know, used that as a jumping off point. Emma wrote all of the lyrics in the book and then her brother is a musician. So he ended up putting all of the lyrics to music and there's a whole Spotify playlist that goes with it and some music videos. And it's just so well done. It's probably my top read of the year. All right. This next book uh, involves author Rick Bragg. And I'll just share with the audience that I went to a uh, at the Looking Glass Rock uh, Writers Conference this past year, Rick Bragg was uh, an instructor in a class that I took of, of about 10 nonfiction writers and uh, had a chance to write a blog post. Listeners, you can check it out on the, my website, landisway.com, about how Rick Bragg writes in color. And he was actually working on this book that you're going to talk about uh, that was going to be coming out, and it's called The Speckled Beauty. I am a huge Rick Bragg fan. He is one of my very favorite authors. I've read everything that he's written. This is a smaller book by him. It's about his dog, who he describes as a very bad dog. And the dog's name is a speckled beauty, but they call him Speck for short. He was a stress. So I'll back up. So Rick has had a lot of health trouble in the last couple of years. He had cancer, which led to heart failure, some other issues. And so he was at home in Alabama living with his mom. So he wasn't thrilled to pieces to be in his 60s and at home living with his mom. And he was trying to struggle with his health and, you know, just kind of generally not in a great headspace. So this dog shows up and it's a stray. It's badly beat up. It is a terrible dog. He howls at the moon at 4 a.m. every day. He like takes down the FedEx guy. He knocks everybody over. He harasses the other pets. You know, he's just harasses the livestock. He's just one of those dogs that you know, it's not the dog you'd pick if you were coming along saying, I'd love a dog. This is not going to be it. 
But in the end, you know, they feel like they've adopted Speck and they're helping him out. But in the end, they all realize, because his brother is also living there too. So it's his mom and Rick and his brother, that even though the mom and the brother complain endlessly about Speck, that Speck has really taught them all something and what it's like to just never give up hope and to love unconditionally and to just really enjoy life. So by the time you get to the end of the book, and, and the beauty of this book, because you know, in so many of these dog books, the dog is no longer around, but Speck is alive and kicking. That's a great, great story. Uh, well, this past year um, in November, uh, I lost uh, the dog that helped me write uh, my novel that's coming out in the spring, Gus. Gus was with us for 15 years. And for the last three, after I retired from the law firm and I was at home writing more and podcasting, he sat right down there at my feet, you know, pretty much everything I did. And But he started out Kind of like the speckled beauty. He uh, he was only a $49 dog. We thought we were saving money when we got him. But uh, after he broke uh, Janet's uh, wrist and then her ankle and then tore up the sofa and then had to go into the vet about 100 times, I don't think we came out well on the economic side, but, but purely on the side of our heart, uh, you know, he, he's going to be missed. He was named after character in my favorite book and all time lonesome dub by Larry McMurtry. He was named after Augustus McRae in the book, and so he was Gus. Uh, and we also lost Lori Darling this last summer, his sidekick. But uh, I know it's hard. You look at the dogs like that, and you think, uh, "Boy, this dog's a lot of trouble." But then again, you think, "Boy, but that's the kind of trouble I love." Well, and they're just, they love you so much. I mean, we have two dogs and, you know, we always talk when they're not here, if they're boarded or, you know, if they've gone to the groomer and you walk up, it's just so quiet because normally their faces are at the door and they're so happy to see you and they love you unconditionally. And they're just yeah. wonderful. Yeah, that's right. Unlike cats who my daughter loves, but we won't get into cats for now. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll stick to dogs. All right. Number 10, these silent woods. So These Silent Woods by Kimmy Cunningham Grant is a mystery kind of slash thriller. I think it probably falls in the middle. A father and daughter live off the grid. As the book opens, you know there is something going on and you slowly learn about them. Their names are Cooper and Finch. He has taken on aliases for them. So the little girl doesn't even know her actual name. They've lived out in the woods since she was a baby. And I think she's about 10 when the story opens. So Kimmy does the best job of building suspense. I get a really frustrated with some of these thrillers that are all over the place and the, the pacing is off and there's these weird twists and turns that don't make sense and there's some big surprise at the end to try to wow the reader, but instead it kind of comes out of nowhere and you're like, huh, but this is the exact opposite. This is really the perfect thriller. So you're trying to figure out what is happening with them and why they're living out in the middle of nowhere. Um, every, they have no electricity, no power, no water, you know, everything is done themselves. So every year, the owner of the home that they live in shows up in December and brings them kind of a year's supply of goods and some money and things like that. He does not show up this year. So Cooper is trying to decide what to do and whether he can leave his daughter and go into town and, you know, risk being seen or whether like what he's going to, how he's going to get his supplies. So the, together, the two of them end up going into town. The little girl sees another woman who later appears in the woods. And so it ends up setting off this kind of chain reaction of eventually what's, you know, what's happening to them, why they're out there and what's going to eventually happen. But it's, it's so well done. You, it's one of those books I sat down. I loved the cover. So I sat down to kind of flip through it and I read it in one sitting. 
Oh, well, that's that's high praise there, reading one sitting. As much as you have going on uh, with with the books, but but I know what you're talking about. It, you know, finding uh, the books where the pacing is good and they keep uh, up with. Um, in fact, when I was writing my latest book that's coming out, I you know I had a lot of critique along the way, which is really great. You got to get the feedback, get it right. And, and a couple of folks were saying, "Well, you're holding off too much stuff toward the end. You need to plant some seeds along the way." And, and sometimes it's hard to do that. Just, yeah, but I'm giving stuff, and yet if you do it the right way. You're giving enough away, but not the entire thing away to kind of keep people's interest, you know, as you move along. So, uh, we, yeah, go, go that's ahead. hard. I mean, that it can is. be really hard, you know, to yeah. not give away too much where then somebody figures it out really early versus waiting till the very end. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, you want kind of that set pacing where slowly you're learning different things. And you're like, oh, I had no idea, you know, and you kind of go from there. But that's a hard thing to accomplish. Yeah, that's that's why you revise them about twenty to thirty times before they before they get printed, uh, and why you're totally worn out and you feel like you've looked at the words a gazillion times. All right, so we got ten great books here that you recommended, and I love listening to you talk about them. I can hear the passion in your voice, Cindy. Uh, so I'm gonna give you a chance just to riff on your your three honorable mentions here. Okay, I'll just sip through these quickly. The first is Better Luck Next Time by Julia Claiborne Johnson, historical fiction set on a divorce ranch outside of Reno in the 1930s. It's set up where the main character, Ward, is actually telling the story. So he's relaying the entire book. Somebody has come to visit him years later in his nursing home. And he is looking back on this time in Reno, the friendships he developed, a relationship, and what happened. So it's very character-driven, such sense of setting and place and kind of what it was like in Reno in the 1930s. So I loved that one. Did you say a divorce ranch? Yes. So because of, because, I, don't think, because, I don't think I've heard that term before. Because of Nevada's laws, you could live in Nevada for six weeks and then you could seek a divorce. So they would literally have groups and, and she bases it on a place her grandfather actually worked or father worked. And so these women would come in groups for like six weeks. They would have almost, it was like a summer camp or winter camp, depending on when they were there. And they would have six people come and stay for six weeks. They'd get their divorce. They'd go home. The next group would come. And so they'd have these cowboys that worked at the divorce ranch to kind of help the women and yeah, entertain yeah, yeah, them, yeah, drive yeah. them around. And so Ward, one of the main characters, was one of the guys who worked at this divorce ranch. Okay, I get it. <laughs> Learn something new every day. Yeah. All right. We Are the Brennans by Tracy Lang. It's a debut that came out in August. Big Irish family, lots of drama. Uh, the daughter is the youngest of four, and she's been, she had left town five years before. Nobody knows why. She's in an accident. She comes back, and suddenly all of these secrets are unleashed. So it's just a fabulous family drama. And then the third is The Right of Her Life by Elizabeth Letts. And it is, I would say, I guess it's really a travelogue and a little bit of a biography. It's the story of Annie Wilkins. She lived in Maine in the 1950s, and she rode on horseback from Maine all the way to California. Took her almost two years. And this was at a time when our highway system wasn't complete. There weren't all the maps we have now. There was obviously no GPS or cell phone. And so the path that she took, like if you looked at it today, it's almost like this just zigzag all over the place because she would just get to the next town and say, okay, how do I keep going? And somebody would tell her. And so she just worked her way across the U.S. But it's it's one of those stories that's like a glimpse in time, you know, like what's happening in the U.S. in 1950. Highways are being built and we're, explain, you know, we're exploring farther out into the West and times are changing and the automobiles getting ready to kind of transform everything. 
So it was really well, really, really well done. That's great. Sounds very interesting. And with all these books, 10 and 3, listeners, I'm going to put this list in the show notes. You can you can find those at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Uh, it'll be uh, on the homepage for you know the next uh, six episodes. And then uh, if you go to the guest list and you search for Cindy's name, you're going to find uh, – find this episode there too. So check that out, get your list of uh, books that you'd like to read from this episode and, and uh, you'll be, you'll be having a lot to do in the next couple of months with, with all these reads. So Cindy, what, what's, uh, what's coming for you in 2022? Any changes in the podcast or the salon or is it just more the same or what? Well, we're back in person for the salon, which is wonderful. So we're working on all of that right now, trying to get situated and setting up our authors for the spring. And with the podcast, I'm just kind of continuing to refine and really interview those people who appeal to me and stories that I like. And one of the things I have found about the podcast that you've probably found too, is that I end up reading books that I would have never read, might not have been on my radar. So I'm just trying to kind of continue to pay attention to that, hone my feelings for what looks good, what sounds good, and make sure I pick well. Yeah, I've often said a couple of times to my wife after I've you know, read a book is I might not ever pick that book up off the shelf, but I really liked it. You know, it was different. It was, it was something that I wouldn't have normally, it, it wasn't a Louis Lamore Western. It wasn't a, a thriller. It wasn't a historical, whatever, you know, it was something different. Uh, hell, it might've even been poetry and I liked it. You know, that's a real stretch for me. So, um, but we do some of that too. Well, that's great. We'll look forward to more of that in, uh, in 2022 for you and what you're having on your, on your podcast. And uh, we'll jump over now to, to Patreon and do some, uh, you know, what readers like about uh, mysteries and historical fiction. So, Cindy, I want to thank you for uh, being a part of Charlotte Readers Podcast on our year-end episode. Well, Landis, thank you so much for having me, and I can't wait to interview you with your new book in the new year. Oh, that'd be great. Thank you. Appreciate that. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.